Hal Lindsey, Doctrines of Salvation, number 9, Reconciliation. A few words about your assignment that is due tomorrow. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion about this assignment, and uh, I acknowledge that it's my fault. But I will try to clarify it now as best I can. I think that the greatest confusion is coming over uh, uh, just which doctrines are you supposed to have which ones are you supposed to have defined, and so forth. So I don't have my list of the ones I assigned, so we'll just try to find out together. You pool your knowledge with mine. Uh, the, as far as I'm concerned, the important doctrines that we've covered so far are these. The doctrine of sin in general. What is sin? Remember, I said that the basic definition of that is any failure to measure up to the perfect standards of God and thought, word, or deed, or nature. Then the, the uh, doctrine of the sin nature. To define it, to have at least one major passage on it, one major scripture where it's uh, set forth, and uh, to illustrate it or to diagram it. Now, I realize this is hard to do. It's very hard to work up illustrations or to have a diagram of a teaching, but I want you to try anyway. I'm not going to be hard in uh, grading this at all. If I see you've made some kind of effort there and put some thought in on it, well, that's all I want to see. But uh, I thought that it would be extremely important for every one of you to have some illustrations or to work up some thoughts on this because you can't teach unless you've got something to, by which you can illustrate it. And I want this course to be as practical as possible. I want you to be teachers. I want you to be able to really lead people into discipleship, and you can't lead people into discipleship unless you can teach. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to teach if you learn how. Now, I learned how to be or do the work of an evangelist through watching Flack and Braun because they've got the gift. And uh, so I just watched what they did, and I prayed about it, and I worked at it, and I learned how to do the work of an evangelist. And even though I'm not a, I do not have the spiritual gift of evangelism, I'm effective as an evangelist. Well, in the same way, I have a gift of teaching. I didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, and whatever degree I have is not up to me, it's up to God. But it's something that was uh, a supernatural gift given to me after I became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, I couldn't teach Mary how a little lamb. And afterwards, I just started to discover a, a desire to teach, a, an ability to teach and so forth, and that's the way I wanted to go. Now, I realize that according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, 
whoever has a gift is responsible to teach others how to do the work of that gift. So that's what I'm trying to do, is teach you how to teach. And uh, this is the way to teach, to first get firmly in mind in a definition, the doctrine, to get to associate that definition with one major passage of Scripture, and then to get an illustration and so forth, and then to apply it. And that's the fourth thing you're to do. You're to apply this to the Christian life. For instance, the sin nature we know affects the Christian life because the sin nature means that man is uh, has a nature which is in rebellion against God. And it's unreformable. So therefore, that fact shows you that in order to live the Christian life, you've got to have a power other than yourself to overcome that nature. That power, of course, is the Holy Spirit. All right, so we've got sin in general, the sin nature, and we've got... Uh, Spiritual death, right? And slavery to Satan. Spiritual death, slavery to Satan. Now, that's the barrier, in other words. And what is uh, the doctrine of God's holiness, right? And God's holiness, the doctrine of God's holiness, in case I didn't make it clear before, simply means that God is so absolutely righteous and just that he cannot have fellowship with anyone who is less than that. That's about as much as you need on that. All right, now, I want you to have defined propitiation. Yeah. You're supposed to be doing this as we go along, you know. Propitiation, redemption, substitutionary atonement, and reconciliation. Now, on those last three, I am not going to require a four, the last four, propitiation, redemption, substitutionary atonement, and reconciliation. I will not require that you have anything on those, but a definition, a short definition, a major passage of Scripture. You will not have to have an illustration because I gave you mine and you're welcome to it. So you won't have to have an illustration or, or a uh, chart on it. But I would like for you to mention how this applies to the Christian life. There again, I, this should not be long. I, I, in my way of thinking, it shouldn't take you long to do this. Because I've told you what these things are on every point as we've gone through. So it ought to be in your notes. All I want to do is see that you got the point. Yes.
When I say the gospel, I don't mean the four gospels. I mean how does it affect our presentation of the four spiritual laws? Which law does it affect? The first law, the second law, the third law, and uh, in what way? Is that clear? Okay. <laughs> the gospel, so far as we're concerned, is the four spiritual laws. In other words, that is an outline, that's a summary of the gospel. All I want to know is how does, uh, if which law does this affect and any other thoughts you want to put there? How does it clarify? Okay. Reconciliation. You know, I believe in being as gracious as I can. Would it help if I made this do Monday? All right, okay, Monday. As I really want you to learn this, I'm not trying to make a hardship on you. I just want you to learn. So, but, but have it ready Monday. And I don't want to see people goofing off because you're not here to pitch woo, you're here to learn. And uh, I see so many people really, really louse up the opportunity for the Holy Spirit in a special way to bring them a big step forward in their maturity by getting infatuated. Like I, I, I know some kids are in the third year here who lost the significance of the first year because they were infatuated with somebody. The second year, they could hardly remember the name of the person they were infatuated with, but they lost the value of the second year because they got infatuated with somebody else the second year. This year, they don't remember that guy's name either. Satan just really can get you confused. So take advantage of this time. You know, the day is coming. I'm just to let you in on some things we're going to be talking about in a special session. Some things are coming up in the not-too-distant future where you may fall on your face and kiss a man's feet for a copy of the Scripture, like they do in Russia right now. A friend of mine named Bill Jones has been to Russia several times tells of how a Russian peasant fell on his face in tears and kissed his shoes because he gave him a, a copy of the Gospel of John in Russian. Now those days are not too far off in the United States. And the day will come when there will be a famine for the Word of God in the United States. And the only thing you may have is what was up here. You may think I'm kidding, but it's on the way. So this is a time privilege. Here we are with the guy walking away from God at enmity with God. Here are your barriers. 
separate man from God, the character of God, so on. Now, the problem of God's holiness, the problem of man's sin, the problem of man being a slave, Satan, the problem of spiritual death. And then here's the work of Christ on the cross. The work of propitiation. Let me give you another help on this propitiation and redemption and so on. Propitiation looks at man from the standpoint of God's wrath upon him because of sin. Propitiation views man as, as condemned because of sin. So Christ removed this as a barrier through satisfying the righteousness and justice of God against man's sin. All right, then redemption. Redemption views man from the standpoint of being a slave to sin and to Satan. So the key thought in propitiation is that God's righteousness and justice is satisfied. The key thought in redemption is that Christ paid the ransom price to release us from slavery to sin and Satan. The key thought in substitutionary death of Christ, sometimes called substitutionary atonement, is it views man as spiritually dead because of sin. Now, reconciliation views man as at enmity in his mind against God because of sin at enmity against God because of sin. That'll help you get these thoughts in mind to distinguish them. Propitiation views man as under the wrath of God and uh, righteousness and justice need to be satisfied. Redemption views man as a slave to sin and a slave to Satan. The ransom must be paid. Substitutionary of death views man as spiritually dead and subject to physical death, and that death must be paid. Reconciliation views man at enmity in his mind against God, and the enmity must be removed. All right? Reconciliation means this. It is the removal of all barriers that separate man from God by the cross. The removal of all barriers that separate man from God by the cross so that man may be brought from enmity to fellowship. Man may be brought from enmity to fellowship with God.
The enmity is removed by the removal of the barriers that separated man from God and by the offer of forgiveness. All right, now here are some words that are used in the Greek New Testament. They're translated by the one English word, reconciliation. You heard the statement, the Greeks had a word for it. Well, boy, they did. The Greeks have about five words for every English word we've got because it was the, the most explicit language ever devised by the minds of men. And there are at least three words in the Greek language for the idea of reconciliation, which is, and all of them are translated by the one English word, reconciliation. Now, the first one, is kata lasso. Kata lasso. Now, this is used throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Now, that is the key passage on reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Another key passage, this is not quite as voluminous as the other, is Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. All right. Now this word katalasso means to change from enmity to friendship. to change from enmity to friendship. Now, this word, however, views it this way. Here is, let's say, God, sake of illustration, and here is man, sake of illustration. Man's at enmity with God. Man has turned his back on God. But God has not turned his back on man. God never had to be reconciled. It's man. Cotalasso means that one person in a relationship has turned away and needs to be brought back. Just one. Now, the perfect example of this is the book of Hosea. And if you want the romance of reconciliation... Read the book, especially the first chapters of Hosea. And if you want the romance of redemption, read the book of Ruth. It illustrates the idea of redemption by near kinsmen. But Hosea perfectly illustrates reconciliation, the concept that is used in the New Testament. Now, here's why. God told Hosea to marry a woman. God picked out his wife. And he told him to marry a prostitute. And he did. 
And he, ha he treated this woman with love. He treated her with respect. She bore children by him. And then she ran off from him. And she went back to prostitution. And God told Hosea to go get her and bring her back. And he said that you might understand my feelings toward Israel and, of course, toward man. Now, Hosea found his wife at the slave auction. Now, a woman slave, when she was put on sale at the slave auction, was always put there stripped naked. And Hosea went and bought back his own wife at the slave auction and brought her back home and loved her again without any retribution toward her. And God says, this is a picture of my love for man. And this is a picture of what man has done to me. That's love. And it's the great picture. You see, Hosea never stopped loving his wife. She stopped loving him. And the idea is given in Hosea that Hosea's great love for her overwhelmed her. And the second time he brought her back, she just became a slave of his because she couldn't get over the fact that he still loved her anyway. And that's a picture of reconciliation. God never had to be reconciled. He's like Hosea. Hosea just kept on loving anyway. But it's man that has to be brought back. And that's what this word katalaso means. And you see, once someone has done injury to another, and they know that injury has been done, the sense of guilt that comes from that produces enmity in the mind and suspicion. So God knows that man cannot be brought back to him unless he shows absolute acceptance to man just like he is. That's the only way that this enmity in man's heart can be removed. Man first has to see why God can accept him back, and that's through the cross. That's why it's so important to make the cross the center of our message. The third spiritual law should feature the fact that God has so completely removed every barrier that could separate man from God that God no longer takes into account their sins, that they can come and accept a gift of forgiveness. But you have to make sure that they get the point of the second law, which is that, boy, they are under the wrath of God because they are sinners. And you have to bring out the fact that they are sinners so they see that they have a need. But if you try to mix God's grace with God's law, you rob the law of its terror and you rob grace of its freeness. You can't mix them. They're mutually exclusive. And you never want to rob the law of its terror. The law is awful in its holiness. And God does not diminish one point of the law in order to accept people. You have to show that. 
But on the other hand, God has so completely dealt with man's failure to live up to the law that he's free to accept man on the, as a gift. All right, this other word that is used is apple lasso, which is the intensive word Okay. Apocatalasso. And this is used in Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It means to change completely from enmity to fellowship. An intensive word. And once again, this word is only used where there is one party that has turned away. But there is this other word that is used, D-I-A, dia kata lasomai, or I'm sorry, it's not misspelled it. Dialasomai, D-I-A-L-L-A-S-S-O-M-A-I. Now this word is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, and it means to change two people to friendship who are in, at enmity with each other. In other words, this word would be illustrated this way. Both people have turned their backs on each other, and both people are at enmity with the, the other. Now, this word is never used with reference to God. In Matthew 5, 24, it talks about two people being at enmity with each other and being reconciled. But apocatalasso and, and uh, katalasso are never used in relation to God. Because God didn't never, ever have to be reconciled to man. He's not at enmity with man. God had to be propitiated. That is, his righteousness and justice had to be satisfied. But he never had to be turned from enmity to love. He's always loved man. It was love that initiated propitiation. Very important point. Okay? All right, let's look at second. Corinthians chapter 5. Let's begin with verse 14. Verses 14 and 15 give the only acceptable motivation for living the Christian life. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all were dead, literally, 
not died, but all were dead. Now here Paul is giving the reason why he was motivated to take the gospel to the world. This was his chief motivation right here. And he tells us how he got that motivation. Paul's chief motivation to take the gospel to the world, and he took the gospel to the outer limits of the Roman Empire by himself in one generation. That which kept pushing his, him on, the word control means to be pressed in on every side. And it's in the present tense which means it keeps on pressing me in on every side. Driving me on is the idea. The reason he did it was the love which Christ had for him. The love of Christ means the love that Christ has for man, not the love we have for him. It's what you call a subjective genitive. The love which Christ has for us keeps pressing us in on every side. The more we see that love, the more the Holy Spirit shows us of this, the more we want to share it with others. And Paul said, this is the way I, I really saw the love that Christ has for us. He says, because having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all were dead. In other words, he says, here was the whole world. It was spiritually dead. And Christ died for everybody. Now he said, seeing that Christ loved us like that is what began to motivate me to want to share Christ with others. He said, and he died for all for the purpose that they who live, now who are those who would live? Hmm? All right, Christians, but how do they come to life? Huh? Right, by the new birth, specifically, by regeneration. See, the only people who are really alive are Christians. The rest of the people are dead. I mean, they're dead in what is really life. The only people who have real life are those who are believers because they've been born again. Now, Christ died for everybody for the purpose that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Here you see substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death. Christ died for us and he rose for us on our behalf. And he says this should teach us that we shouldn't live for ourselves once we've really come to have life, but we should live for the one who died for us and made all this possible. And he says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. This simply means that once you realize what it means to be a Christian, you should never look at the world and the people you know in the world in the same way as you used to. For instance, you may look at, uh, in college, you may look at this cheerleader, you know, well, before you was a Christian, you thought, man, that's, that's the greatest guy. He doesn't have need of anything. And maybe you were the kind of person that was a little bit afraid of someone who was really big time on a campus. You say, well, you know, I haven't got anything for him. I haven't got anything to offer this guy. He doesn't need anything. But once you become a Christian, you never look at a guy that way anymore. You are to see him as God sees him from God's viewpoint. You are to say, 
Boy, he may be a cheerleader, but if he doesn't have Christ, he doesn't have anything. And I've got something that he really needs. And therefore, I should share it with him. And not be awed by the prestige or the position of anybody. Paul stood before kings and before slaves. And he really treated them all alike. You're a child of the king. Royalty. And though you never want to be fat-headed about it, you sure don't want to ever have an inferiority complex again. No place for that in Christian life. You're not inferior to anyone. Boy, you've got what this world needs. And I'll tell you one thing. If I were to be put in the presence of President Johnson today, it wouldn't awe me. But I'd have one thing to tell him about. Maybe two. I'd tell him about Christ, and I'd start telling him he's coming back. We shouldn't look at man from the human viewpoint, which gets awed at their prestige, is the point. Verse 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, I'll explain that verse when we get to identification tomorrow. Now, all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18 is a tremendous verse because it wipes out the common teaching among Christians that some people are called to witness and others are called to pray and most are called to stay. Now, according to this verse, everyone who is reconciled to God is what? A minister of reconciliation. Did you know you're a minister? If you're a Christian, you are a minister of reconciliation. No such thing as the uh, professional uh, ministry and the lay spectators. There's no distinction between ministers and laity in the Christian life. All are called. All have the privilege. All have the power. And every believer is to be a minister of reconciliation. We are to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we're motivated by the love that Christ had for us, and you won't have much desire to share love with others that you don't know exists, so therefore the Holy Spirit has to teach you from the Scripture about the love of God. But every believer is to be able to explain how God has removed every barrier that separated men from God and now to offer them a free gift of salvation. And basically, that's what the four laws is all about. You don't have to go into all the theology. The four laws express in simple terms what we're talking about. You should really put the spotlight, though, on the work of Christ on the cross in that third law. The substitution idea that he died for us and now God is free to accept us just like we are, no matter what we've done. 
acceptance as a gift in salvation. Every believer is to be able to do that. Everyone who's been reconciled to God is to be a minister of reconciliation. Now, the only ones that aren't to be a minister of reconciliation are those who aren't Christians. Everybody else is included. It's a wonderful privilege. And what is the ministry of reconciliation? Namely this, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now this wipes out the friendship evangelism thing here. The, uh, the Greek word translated word here means an audible word. I mean, you know, telling somebody. Some people say, well, we'll win them with our lives. And I say this categorically, if we have to win the world with our lives, no one's going to get won because I don't know any lives that are particularly that attractive because a non-Christian can find fault with anyone. Usually does. He calls everybody a hypocrite. Now, it's important that your life back up your words, but no one's going to come to know Christ without somebody telling them. So you've got to tell them. And what a message we've got to tell them. Christ has removed every barrier that separated man from God, and it was God's love that did it. Now look, God loves you. He loves you with all his heart. He loves you even though you have never done anything for him or can't do anything for him. He loves you even though you're at enmity with him. He loves you even though you hate God at times. You may not be willing to admit it, but every man hates God by nature. And God loved you anyway. He gave his only begotten son that he could remove these barriers, which you put there. He didn't put them there. Now, what does he want you to do? He, he says, look, here's a gift, a total pardon. All you have to do is accept it. Man, that's a message, isn't it? I mean, you know, if we start making things clear, people just fall all over themselves to get to it. I had people this year speaking around various places, especially on free speech platforms where you get the people that you usually wouldn't get other places, to come up and say, man, I didn't know that's what Christianity was. Who wouldn't want that? I said, that's right, who wouldn't? But most people put tags on the gospel. Most people put price tags on the gospel and they make expensive what it took the death of the Son of God to make free. And you know, God doesn't take kindly to that. It costs God everything to make the gospel free, and you better be careful about putting price tags on it. The power of the gospel is in its freeness. Now, a man has to know he's lost, so you have to really get across the fact that he's a sinner. Sometimes you have to really go to, to their deeds to prove to them that they're sinners. And I like to use the law, because that's what God gave the law to do, to prove men sinners. 
So I really use it on people in the second law. I say, God is holy and man is sinful. Now, what does it mean, God is holy? Well, nobody knows what holiness is. So you just tell them, well, look, it's impossible to know fully what God's holiness is. So God gave us a little yardstick to show us in our own experience what holiness is like. That yardstick is the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are like a thermometer. You put a thermometer in a person's mouth to see if he has fever or not. But you can leave that thermometer in his mouth for days, and it won't lower the fever. It'll just show that he has one. Now, that's what the law does. God says, open your mouth and say, ah. And that law will show that you're, you're fatally sick, but it can't make you sinless. It can only show you're a sinner. It can't stop you from sinning. It can only bring sin out of you. And this is what the law means. Jesus gave its meaning. He said, I've had guys say, well, I'm all right with God. I'm not a sinner. So I say, okay, here's what Jesus said this yardstick means. You've heard it said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. I use this with the men. You shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you look after a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. How are you doing on that one? And to the girls, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. But I say that if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the judgment. How are you doing on that one? You ever been angry? Or if suddenly all law and order broke down, and you knew you could get away with anything you wanted to, and not have any retribution, would you be good? It usually gets to them. But here, God's taking the problem away. You've got to really show them there's a problem, and then you've got to show them that the problem's solved. So that's the exciting thing about uh, reconciliation. Now notice, Reconciliation is for everyone. God has already reconciled everyone as far as he is concerned. He has provided a total reconciliation in verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world, you see, which means all men would ever live. Not counting their their trespasses against them. Trespasses means a deliberate violation and thought word or deed of any standard of God. He just didn't count them against men. He took all of the penalty upon himself, and now he's made it possible for him not to have to count sin against man. That is the wonderful truth of reconciliation. And it says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Every believer as an ambassador for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our ministry. That's every believer's ministry. And we need to be built up in the faith in order that we can be stable ourselves. But we, you know, the reason we want to grow in Christ 
is so we can go into combat. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for uh, a soldier to constantly be in training but never go into combat? And yet that's what some Christians do. They're constantly in training but never in combat. And yet God doesn't want you to go out of a guilt compulsion. He wants you to go because the Holy Spirit has put within your heart the measure of God's love so that you want to share this with others. Now you may have, there's a difference between desire and feelings. I desire to do certain things that I don't feel like doing. Now the Holy Spirit works deep down in our heart upon our desires so that we want to do God's will. We just simply depend upon Christ. But you know, every time I go to share Christ, especially in threatening situations, my feelings say no, because I'm an introvert by nature. But deep down there's that desire that says, let's go. And so I step out on faith expecting the Holy Spirit to do what God promised he would do. He always does. All right, any questions? Yes, sir. All right, that's, that's a good question. He says, if God doesn't take into account the sin of the unbeliever, particularly, then on what basis is he judged? That's basically your question. You see, this is where most people jump the track and get completely illogical in the gospel by saying, you know, and they paint this picture of God's going to trot out all of your gross sins at the last judgment. No, God's not going to do that. There's one reason men are going to hell, and that's because they turned down God's provision for sin. Not because of their sins. God's not counting their sins against them anymore. They are going to bust hell wide open because they turned down the gift of the Son of God. Now this is what it means in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Let's turn there for a minute. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with the 26th verse. Here's a group of, of people who have heard all about the gospel, they were tagging along with the Christian community, that is, the Christian community in Jerusalem that were from, from Hebrew background. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Remember that. Most people forget. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, page 381. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the, the truth, there is no longer, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin. Now in context, the writer has been talking about the fact that when Christ came and died on the cross, that this was the sacrifice that all of the animal sacrifices before had been predicting. He was the reality of which these Old Testament sacrifices were the shadow, as it says in 10.1. So 
So when Christ came and died on the cross, he didn't just cover sin like the animal sacrifices did. He took it away. He completely paid for sin and removed it as a problem. Now, there were those in this Hebrew community who had been raised in Judaism, raised all of their life to offer animal, animal sacrifices, who still were clinging to the animal sacrifices. And so the writer warns them here in verse 26, he says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That means there's no more animal sacrifices. They're not valid anymore. Yes. Yes. In context, there no longer is a need for any other sacrifice, you see. Christ perfects forever all who are sanctified, and those who are sanctified, that means to be set apart to God as his possession. The moment that you trust in Christ, you're sanctified. You're set apart as God's possession, and you're thereby perfected forever. What Christ did on the cross is applied in total to you at that moment. Now, it says, for if we go on sinning willfully, this means that they knew about Christ, and yet they did not stop offering the animal sacrifice. They still started with depending on them. And so it goes on to say, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which shall consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, how do you do that? By rejecting it. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. Now, this is the blood of Christ which established the new covenant that is mentioned in verses 16 and 17 up here. The New Testament means new covenant where God no longer counts sins against us. He says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that's true from the moment a person believes in Christ. And so he says, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Now when it says he was sanctified, this refers to the fact that Christ died for everyone. So in a very real sense, the world is sanctified, but it is not applied specifically until a person receives it by faith. So in a very real sense, man has been set apart from the guilt of his sins. In a very real sense, he's been set aside from sin. The word sanctified here means to be set apart from. Yes. Huh? More severe than the physical punishment that was inflicted upon the people who set aside the law of Moses during the Old Testament. In other words, he's using the illustration that when a person in Israel under the Old Testament time set aside the law of Moses, he would be stoned to death. Now, he said, if they were stoned to death for just setting aside an earthly expression of God's law, of how much severe punishment will you be considered worthy 
to set, a, set aside the law of, uh, or the covenant of Christ. So it's contrasting that. Yes, back here. Well, at the last judgment in, he, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, it shows that only unbelievers will stand at the last judgment. There will be no believers there. And the opening of the books, it says they will be judged according to their deeds. The word deeds does not imply things that are wicked, but things that are socially acceptable. Now, apparently, what's going to happen is that every unbeliever is going to stand before the throne of Christ it's Christ that will be the last judge. And they're going to be shown the things that they thought were good deeds are going to be brought up. And it's going to be shown that the things they thought were good do not measure up to the absolute righteousness of God. Now, even the things that we think are good are sin, you see. That's not the point. It's just going to be demonstrated that God is going to take the things that they thought were good and use them against them. Yes, sir. Because God now can judicially declare us as righteous as he is on the basis of the fact that our sins have been paid for. Now, we'll get to that tomorrow because we're going to talk about justification and identification. That's the truth of justification that you ask about. Okay, let us pray. Father, we pray that we might understand the infinite love which it took to provide this forgiveness that you offered to us through the cross that we might understand just how far from you by nature we are, that we might understand that no matter whether we might have been good socially, that we are considered the grossest of sinners with the rest. And it's only by your grace and through your love that we can be accepted with you. May the Holy Spirit drive this into our hearts that we might respond in faith. In Christ's name, amen. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number nine, Reconciliation. Please use the fast forward to the end of this tape. Thank you. We come to this column where it is limited It's limited to those who believe. This is what happens once and for all at the moment a person places faith in Jesus Christ. First, there takes place justification, which is accomplished on the basis of the finished work of Christ, the whole thing. Specifically, it relates to propitiation because it's it has to do with the, the justice of God. Justification, and we'll go into that in detail in a minute. 
and identification. Identification occurs at that moment. We'll take that up in detail too. And forgiveness The moment a person believes he is forgiven all sin, past, present, and future, on the basis of redemption, of course, the whole finished work of Christ. Also, he is given freedom. Freedom from the authority of sin. Freedom from the authority of Satan and freedom from the authority or the jurisdiction of God's holy law. At that same instant, all of these things happen instantaneously at the moment of salvation. He is regenerated. Regeneration means to be given new life, to be born again. And he has been dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence forever in the believer. He is sealed. This means that uh, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person, we'll take all of these in detail later, but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit which constitutes God's guarantee that he will bring you to heaven in his presence forever. The sealing means a, it's a mark which means you've been purchased. And the mark of God on you is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. He has adopted. Adopted means that you are legally brought into God's family as an adult son. This is uh, something that is amplified by the practice of adoption in the Roman world. How many of you saw the picture of Ben-Hur? Do you remember in Ben-Hur, after the wreck at sea, the, uh, well, the general or the admiral that he saved had a big party for him and officially and legally declared him his son. Well, that was the right of adoption, which was something that happened in the ancient world. And it was a legal ceremony, which a man had to do either for his blood son or for someone else he was adopting. But whether you were a blood descendant of a man or not, you had to be adopted. And when you'd go through this ceremony, from that point on, you were declared legally mature the father would give you a ring with his seal on it and all you had to do to draw upon all of the wealth that your father had was to put that ring symbol into some wax and that was the same as being given authority over all the wealth of your father now that happens the minute that you become a believer once and for all all of these things are set forth in the scripture in the heiress tent which means it happens at the moment, a point of time that you believe once and for all. It can't be changed. 
They're all based on the finished work of Christ. Now, there are in total 34 things that happen to a believer at the moment he believes in Christ. And this is just part of it right here. But here are some of the most important things. But today we want to take up specifically justification. What happens to a believer at the moment of salvation? Well, all of these things happen simultaneously, but we'll try to take them up in some sort of a logical order. The first thing that occurs is that the believer The believer has the slate wipe clean. Please turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 13. I want to show you the kind of faith that brings justification. The greatest thing that God does for a believer at the moment of saving faith is to justify him. Luke chapter 18, page uh, 134. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer, or a publican. Now, a tax gatherer was considered by the Pharisees and the religious people, the religious crowd, to be the most wicked sinner in all the world. A tax gatherer or a publican was a man who betrayed his country by agreeing to collect taxes for the Roman government. And he would get his pay by collecting more than was assigned by the government. In other words, that's the only payment he got. They didn't give him a salary. They just told him, whatever you can collect, you can keep over and above what we require. So they made their living off of cheating their own countrymen. And the Pharisees said, that's the greatest sin that you can commit. And so they were considered the wickedest, the most wicked people. And uh, says that these two went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one who prayed three times a day. Or I should say he went to the temple three times a day. He prayed seven times a day and so on. We'll see a little bit of the brownie points they tried to pile up in this passage. And in verse 11 it says, The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this publican over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
Now, do you think this guy was kidding? No, he did all these things. And you know, this guy today in the average church would be considered the, the pillar of the church, wouldn't he? Especially he tithed. So this guy would probably be the head deacon in the average church today. And everybody would be applauding him and looking on, oh, look at this great saint of God. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so Jesus said, but yet, there, here was the other fellow praying, verse uh, 13. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Why? Well, it says he was beating his breast, and this beating of the breast was a sign of great sorrow and anguish. It was a sign of, uh, of expressing uh, your being downcast. He was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, the word merciful is propitious. And he was talking about propitiation. You know, it's not, it's not an accurate prayer to ever pray to God, be merciful. Because mercy, mercy implies, if you have to beg God to be merciful to you, it implies that he's not willing to act in love toward you. It implies that God, just by being sentimental, could be merciful to you. The real word is not that, but if you have a New American Standard, you look in the column over there and it shows propitious under the 13th verse and that's the right thing the correct way to approach God is on the grounds that God I want to enter in your presence because Christ has already satisfied your just wrath against my sins and that's the way this man was approaching and it says he wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven and this meant that he was he considered himself to be unworthy to approach God and yet he was approaching him because he said, look upon me in the light of propitiation, in the light of the fact that there has been a sacrifice offered to take the penalty for my sin. And so he says, be propitious toward me, a sinner. Now this is the attitude that a person must have to have the right kind of faith. Saving faith on the one hand says, I am guilty and on the other hand, simply reaches out for the gift of forgiveness that God has provided through someone taking our place, someone bearing the consequences for our sins. And what does Jesus say about this? He says in verse 14, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, what does it mean to be humble? It means to have a true estimation of yourself. It means to recognize that you can't do anything to make yourself acceptable to God. You can't help God make you, you acceptable. Look at the approach the Pharisee had. 
He was doing all kinds of things to make himself acceptable to God, and those things that he was doing in themselves were not wrong. But his motive was wrong. And that's what it means in Romans chapter 4, where it says, To him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now this, this means that you're not coming to God working with the idea it's going to gain you his acceptance. Now there are works in the Christian life, but they are the production of the Holy Spirit as you walk in utter dependence upon him, not your own work. But if you come with any idea that you can re uh, help God make you acceptable to him, you're rejected. And Christ had the most vicious, and uh, I shouldn't say vicious, but the strongest words to say to these people who were trying to got, come to God by their own efforts. This afternoon, if you want to read how the gentle Jesus, gentle and mild, thought about those who came by their own brownie point, read Matthew chapter 23. There's not been a more scathing indictment of anyone than that. And that was toward these people right here who were tithing. They were going to the temple. They were praying. They did not commit adultery outwardly. They were not swindlers. They weren't unjust. They were socially acceptable and so on. This is the kind of faith that brings salvation. All right, Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 39, that's page 147. To me, this is the greatest illustration in the whole Word of God of what, it what kind of faith and how much faith it takes to be saved. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the scene is this. Christ and two murderers were hung together on the cross, three of them, one on either side of Christ. We know from the word used of them that they were malefactors, criminals. This means that they were guilty of murder and other things. So it, and Matthew tells us that when both were first hanged on the cross, that both of these criminals were hurling abuse at Jesus because it uses the plural in Matthew's account. says that when they were first put on the cross, that both of these criminals were laughing at Jesus and they were mocking him and everything along with the rest of the crowd. But something happened to one of them in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for what we are receiving, for what we are receiving, and what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, was saying to him, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now here is the faith that justifies. Both thieves really represent the two kinds of people in the world. Because everyone starts off the Christian or starts out off life by not believing in Christ. And yet one of them changed his mind about Christ. He probably looked at Jesus as everyone was mocking him, and he saw that Jesus never replied. And that Jesus, as he watched him, was not an ordinary man. And he began to add up the things that he had probably heard about this prophet, whom everyone had heard about. And he began to come to the decision, and then he expressed it. He said, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. But this man has done nothing wrong. They recognized his own, his own uh, deserving, uh, the fact that he deserved what he was getting. Recognized he was a sinner. But he recognized that Jesus was righteous. And so he said, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, that is a remarkable statement of faith because he's saying, I believe that this is not the end for this man. Jesus is dying with us, but he's going to have a kingdom. So he believed he was coming back. Now, that was all the faith he had. Now, he was nailed to a cross. He couldn't get off the cross and be baptized. He couldn't do any good works. He was about as bad a sinner as you could get. He was a murderer. And he started off cursing Jesus with everybody else. But just before he died, he expressed faith in Jesus. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And that criminal is in heaven face to face with Christ right now. Now, this shows the kind of faith that saves and brings justification. Now, what does this word mean, justification? It's from the, it's from the Greek word, dikaiao. Dikaiao. It's used in the Bible in the sense of to declare righteous. Of course, as, it, as to its full meaning from the Bible, it means on the basis of propitiation, at the instant a man believes that he is declared as righteous as God is righteous. So that's the first meaning of justification. It means to be declared the very righteousness of God. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. The main passage on justification is verses 21 through 27 of Romans chapter 3, page 259.
But now, apart from law, there's no definite article before law in the original, and it says in verse 21, now apart from law, and this draws emphasis upon the principle of law, not just the law of Moses, it means apart from any kind of law. And law stands for the principle of human merit and human works. Apart from any human merit, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, what righteousness of God? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith. In other words, it's a faith righteousness, which means it's not something man can produce himself, but it is a righteousness which is the very equivalent of God's absolute righteousness, which is given on the basis of faith. And it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You see, God's holy law expressed in the law of Moses and also expressed in the Sermon on the Mount expressed in the conscience, drives men to see that there is no distinction between men. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's law does one thing. It puts everyone on the same level and makes everyone equal. We're all sinners. Because no one can keep it without breaking it. And so it says after God reduces us all to the same level, that then he says, all right, here's the answer. Here's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We're all universally unacceptable to God, but yet the provision is universal to anyone who believes. And so the first thing that justification means is that we're declared the very righteousness of God. And in verse 26, we see that propitiation is the, the real grounds upon which this is done. Verse 25, it says, Jesus is our propitiation, which God publicly displayed. Verse 26, it says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now here is one of the greatest statements in the whole Word of God. The greatest problem that God ever had to solve, according to the witness of, of God's Word in, itself, the greatest problem He ever had to solve was how He could remain a just God and yet justify a sinner. And it says that through the work of Christ on the cross, God has made it possible to be a just God. He hasn't set aside his justice and yet to declare as righteous as he himself is righteous anyone who simply believes in what Christ did. That is the greatest thing that God ever accomplished. And that shows you how much he loves you. He is a righteous and just God, and he could, could never compromise his righteousness and justice and just says, 
Well, kids, let's let bygones be bygones. Sure, you've sinned. Let's just put it away and forget it. It'll cease to be God. But he loved us so much that he found a way to satisfy righteousness and justice so that now on the basis of faith, which gives no merit to man, I can accept this gift of forgiveness, and at that moment he declares me the very righteousness of God. And so Paul rightly adds up the argument in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? What man can say he helped God in any, any moment or any iota to bring himself to be acceptable to God? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Now notice he's talking about kinds of law. By any principle of works, any kind of works. No, but by law of faith. The law of faith, which says, I don't deserve anything but judgment, but I accept the gift of pardon. All right, the second meaning of justification, there are four meanings, four aspects of the meaning of justification. You'll find in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, David came to a fresh realization of what justification meant after he had committed adultery and murdered the husband of the woman, woman of whom he had committed adultery. And so he was really under a pile of guilt until the Spirit of God came in and showed him that he was forgiven and had been forgiven. And so David writes a psalm to set forth the wonder of the justification that comes by faith. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, Blessed are the, and, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the second aspect of justification. Whenever you are you believe in Christ and you're justified, it means the Lord no longer takes into account your sins. Now, this word, take into account, means to keep an itemized account of something and hold it against you. When it says God doesn't remember your sins anymore, that's what it means. Now, he... It doesn't mean he doesn't have an awareness of them. It means he doesn't remember them against you. God is omniscient. He can't forget anything. But his justice has been so settled that he no longer has to hold them against the one who believes in Christ. And so that's the second aspect of justification. The first is a positive. He credits his own righteousness to us. The second is a negative. After we're justified, he no longer takes into account our sins. And no one knew that better than David. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, is a good verse to put along with this one, which says, If thou, O Lord, should keep account of our sins, 
who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be reverently trusted. The word fear in that passage means reverent trust. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22 is another good verse, which says, I have covered as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. I've put them behind my back. Return unto me, for I have redeemed you. Now, that was the verse God spoke to the believers. He said it's like he covers our sins out of his sight so he can't see them and, and will not hold them against us. Now, it's tremendously important for you to get the point on this because if you don't, here's what's going to happen. We've talked a lot about getting under law. Now, let me show you how the average believer gets under law. You don't get the big ten out and suddenly get under that. But here's how you get under law. First, there's usually some sin in the average Christian's life that uh, keeps repeating itself. You've got some area of weakness where you fail. So Satan slips in after you've done this a while, and he says, now look, you think God's going to forgive you, but he's got the wrong tense there. You've been forgiven. He says, you don't really think God's covered all this sin, do you? Why, you're at least going to have to get away and pray for a day or two before God will accept you back into full fellowship. And so what happens is that sin goes to guilt. You begin to get subconscious guilt, and it starts to spill over into the conscious. And that guilt produces estrangement. You begin to have anxiety toward God regarding your relationship. You forget you're forgiven. Your eyes are off of your justification. Now, what does that do? It leads to making a vow or determining within yourself that you're not going to do this again. Now, whenever you do that, you begin to say to God, Lord, if you'll just not really take account of this sin, just this one time, I won't do it again. Now, at that point, I'll give anybody in the room a written guarantee that you'll do it again. Because then you have, you have switched over to the flesh, and you start Avis. We try harder. And the harder you try, the more you're going to sin. Because whatever you focus your attention on and try to do by the flesh is the thing you'll do the most, like trying to forget a song. And so you've got your eyes off the problem solver, and you've got them on the problem. And when you do this, you're switched over to the energy of the flesh. Now what happens? The harder you try, the more you sin. The more you sin, the guilty, guiltier you feel, the more estranged you feel in your relationship to God, the more you determine you're not going to do it again, the more you try, the more you sin. And so what have we here is sort of a ever-tightening spell until you get wound up so tight, you get uptight, and you're just 
wound up like a bowstring and something has to break. And you begin to wonder what happened. Well, let's see. I must, uh, I need to read my Bible two more hours a day. And with that attitude about God, forgetting about the fact that you were accepted not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Christ has done, every time you read the Bible, you just get guiltier because you're reading it through the wrong focus. And everything gets out of perspective. Now, how do you get off of this merry-go-round? Like a song I heard the other day, the Valley of the Dolls, gonna get, gotta get, <laughs> somehow get off of this merry-go-round. The way you get off of it, right here. You look with faith what God has already done, the finished work of Christ. You remember, I'm not going to get forgiven, I am forgiven. You recognize and, and claim that by faith, then you're able to admit, yes, God, I'm guilty, but you don't feel guilty. And then, therefore, you're not estranged from God, and faith is based on the finished work of Christ. That's the reason you can trust God, because you know he's not counting your sins against you. You know you don't have to make some vow to God. He doesn't want your vows. What he wants is for you to trust him this moment. The next moment will take care of itself. Yes, sir. I can't hear you. Yes, you're absolutely correct. His question was, is it the main sin to uh, not stay or to stay in the circle and not go by faith? Yes. You see, the greatest sin Christians commit is not believing not depending upon the finished work of Christ and upon the Holy Spirit. So in order to sin, you've got to sin twice. The first tw sin is when you stop depending on the Holy Spirit, and the second sin is when you do what you were tempted to do. But the Scripture says that whatsoever is not from faith is what? Sin. Romans 14, 23. And that's why this is so important to get this aspect of justification. All right? The third meaning of justification is that there is no more condemnation. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. After Paul takes us through his own experience of utterly failing God because he was trying to live for God by his own efforts, trying to keep God's laws, he even tried to depend upon the Holy Spirit to keep God's laws, and he utterly failed, and he was just wiped out. He felt so guilty and everything in Romans 7. And then in Romans 8, he, he begins with verse 1 to tell us how he got out of that vicious circle. Romans 7 is actually a picture of how this circle gets tighter and tighter till you come to the point that Paul did in 7.24. He said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He was in utter despair. He says that he first started coming out of it when he realized, verse 1, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not counting our sins against us, and that means he will not condemn us. He may discipline us in the sense of uh, seeking to bring us to faith, but even that discipline is in love, not punishment. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. That's where that verse ends. Now, in chapter 8, verse 31 through 34, he develops that thought. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, he's shown in eight chapters that God is for us, the believer. So who can be against us? God, far from condemning us, is the one who provided everything for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he with not with him freely give us all things? Now, the idea is this. When you were God's enemy and you hated him, he sent his most beloved son to die for your sins. And that's the greatest thing he could ever do because in that he provided eternal life and eternal forgiveness. Now the argument is this. If God did all that for you when you were his enemy, is he going to do less for you now that you're his child? Of course, the answer is a thundering no. He'll freely give you all things. Now, this is the ground upon which faith in the Christian life is built. If you don't have this concept, you just don't have faith in the Christian life. You'll be up and down. This is the foundation bedrock upon which the Christian life must be erected. Anything else is sand. And when the storms of life come, it will collapse like a grass hut. So he says in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now let me ask you a question. Who could bring a charge against the ones that God has justified? Well, Satan could try, but uh, he's already condemned himself, so that couldn't really bother us. But who could? God himself could, so he answers that question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, there's only one qualified to bring a charge against us, and that's God himself. But he says, now, wait a minute. God is the one who justifies. In other words, the only one who could condemn a Christian is God himself. But wait a minute, remember, he justified you. Now we go back to the, to the doctrine of God's character. God, through a sovereign decision, satisfied his righteousness and his justice, 
and now he has poured out his love upon those who believe. Now that was a sovereign decision, and God is also what? Immutable. And that immutability means that once God makes a decision, he cannot change it. So what he's showing here is that once God declares you righteous, as he is righteous, that can never be reversed. Never. And one of the great statements on God's immutability is Ecclesiastes 3.14, which says, For I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor nothing taken from it, but God does it that men may trust him. God's immutability stands behind salvation. The moment a person believes in Christ, God forgives him past, present, and future sins because God, you see, is omniscient. And omniscience means what? Talk to me. He knows everything, doesn't he? All right, so here is a bird named Hal Lindsey. 1955, I believe, and here's the time I check out. So his omniscience is not only looking at the time I was born till the time I received Christ, it's looking at my whole life. And his omniscience saw all the sin, and all of my sins were in view when Christ died on the cross. And so when God justifies me, it means my whole life. He declares me righteous. And he declares me righteous in, in the light of his omniscience. So therefore, he doesn't have to reverse the decision. He couldn't if he wanted to. So that's the assurance of that verse. Now, there's only one other person who is regarded as able to condemn you. God the Father is not going to do it. What about Jesus Christ, God the Son? Well, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, is Christ going to ever reject someone after he believes in him? Well, he says that's preposterous. He's the one who died for you when you hated him. And not only that, he was raised from the dead, and now he's at the right hand of the Father, and whenever you sin, he's praying for you. Far from condemning you, he's interceding for you. Now that is the security on which the believer's life must be built. The importance of this doctrine is beyond human comprehension. Because, as I believe I've said this class before, I keep getting my two classes mixed. But I want to bring this out forcefully at this time. If you have a child who's raised in a home where he's never secure in the family relationship, he's raised in a home where if he performs, the father and mother accept him, but if he doesn't perform according to their standards, they show him rejection. You know what will happen to that child? Well, psychologically, we know what will happen to him. He'll grow up 
first of all, with a tremendous instability. It'd be unstable, up and down, vacillating. Secondly, he'll be performance-oriented all the time. He thinks that no one will accept him unless he earns it. And this produces hostility because he's always failing to add up to what he thinks people want. So he's, he's always hostile. He's always trying but never making it, and he's hostile because of that. Another thing is he's dishonest with himself and with others because he thinks if people really knew what I was like, boy, they just wouldn't accept me. So he has a, a real sense of anxiety because he's afraid someone's going to find out what he's really like. And he thinks that no one can love him just for himself. There are many other things, but the point that I want to make is that just as that is true in human relationships, and especially the parental-child relationship, it's a thousand times more true in the relationship of the believer with God the Father. If you are not secure in the finished work of Christ and its application to you at the moment of salvation, then you're going to have the same characteristics. And it's easy to have this because you project your parental relationship to your relationship with God. And that's why so much space in the Scripture is focused on God's proof of how much he loves you and why he can love you without any conditions. It's so that you will not be trying to perform to earn his acceptance. So that you will not be trying to cover up what you really are. But you realize he accepts you just like you are, and he knows everything about you, and he still accepted you. And you will not be trying to earn God's love. You realize you are completely loved right now. You realize that you just don't have to be constantly in a state of anxiety about, is God accepting me now? Let's see, did I win enough people to Christ today, or should I go out and try a little harder? That's great to win people Christ, but don't make that the condition of whether God's really pleased with you or not. That's the way to get under law. But realizing that God loves you like this is the generating factor that brings about the motive to really want to go out and work. Just like when I was a kid. You know, when we see how much God loves us, the Holy Spirit brings that to our heart, and it causes, through the Holy Spirit, an automatic response of love for God. And you can only trust the one that you believe loves you. You can't trust someone that you don't believe loves you. You can believe everything else about God. You can say, oh yes, God's all-powerful, God's all-wise, but that won't make you trust him. The only way you can trust him is if you believe that he loves you and you see why he can. Then you'll have a dynamic and stable Christian life, and not until then. But if there's a constant anxiety that this relationship can be broken by what you do, then you're never going to have a dynamic faith. Shall we pray?
Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will drive home and far beyond the things I've said because they're what you've said. In Christ's name, amen. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number 10, Justification. Please use the fast forward to the end of this tape. Thank you.